0: Well, I would say take out your Bibles, but for the next six months, I will not be able to say that because we are moving, I won't say beyond the Bible, but outside the Bible when we're looking at church history. I hope that's not offensive to anyone at a Bible church, but a little history of the Christian church. What do you think is the, the main question that's normally asked? People want to know about church history. Any, any stabs at it real quick? When did the Say again? When did the when did Roman Catholicism get started? Get started. That's the number one question, bottom line question. The next one is, when did we get the Bible? All these questions answered. Um, all of them kind of evolved. But with each lecture, everyone, every, each one will build upon the previous one. And uh, I should be able to give you these slides. They should be available to you. Uh, it's being recorded, so you can go back and listen to it. Um, it's very in-depth. Uh, I'll suggest certain books to you along the way if you'd like to be reading along the way. But uh, let's get started. Let me open with a word of prayer. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for the freedom to meet, freedom to glorify and honor your name, and I pray that's what we would do. Uh, Without without an open Bible before us, we study the history of the church. It's uh, a a history and a story that you've given to us with ups and downs, X-rated scenes throughout it. I pray that you would uh, show us The mistakes from the past, so they not be repeated, at least in our lifetime, and so far as we can help it. Show us what we need to know from this study of church history in order to glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, this will take us through, we'll do two parts, 13 to 15 weeks, the history of the church up to the Reformation, and then if you're still around, we'll do the Reformation to the modern day. And that's a great study too, the Reformation to the modern day, modern day church, it's it is the way it is today based upon what happened 100 years ago, 500 years ago. It is a, in fact, I'll show you that Joel Osteen is the perfect character for the modern church given the way the church has been going. And he is the cherry on top uh, for what, what it is. Today. I'm not saying that in a complimentary way, it just fits. So uh, we'll look tonight, uh, we're going to do a quick overview of, uh, of what we saw in Acts because the book of Acts is the first part of the history of the church And so let's take a look. Uh, A couple of things. People always ask me, where do you get this information? The New Testament is our primary source for everything. Uh, Problem is in the New Testament, the only thing we have is the book of Acts. Um, There are a few other non-biblical or non-canonical books that we look at for uh, the stories that we have, the evidences or the the accounts that we have, such as the histories of Josephus, uh, voluminous writing that Josephus wrote. He was a Jewish A historian, first century Jewish historian, not a Christian. The Roman historian Tacitus, and later Eusebius, who was a church historian. And they give us other glimpses about the first century. Only the book of Acts tells us what the apostles did, yet it does not tell us about what all the apostles did. Essentially just Peter and Paul. And then after Paul, we take a look at what's happened up to to that point. First century. First period, in the early period, you'll see a little timeline there. It's uh, from A.D. 30 up to uh, A.D. 100. You've got Peter's ministry, Paul's ministry, John's ministry. These are some old slides from my old buddy, Roy Ledgerwood, who is now deceased. Uh, they're, they're kind of old, but I love the way he did it. So I, uh, with his permission, before he passed away, he passed all of his stuff on to me. Use it as you see fit. Man. So some of it I will. And Some of you, if you've ever sat through any Roy's classes, you might say, I've seen those before. Uh, I have... Made them look better. He really was, after all, just an engineer. So we got to help, <laughs> help the engineer tailor those edges. Yeah, up to the day of Pentecost, you get the feel for there. You see the boot there in uh, um, uh, Italy. The white part is water, the gray is land. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, you've got people from all over the empire. That's what Acts 2 tells us. From all over the empire, the, the uh, Roman Empire, they converge on Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. There, it means they were Jews or Jewish converts. And so they came to worship on the day of Pentecost. We see where 3,000 believed in Acts chapter 2. By Acts chapter 4, there's 5,000 people who have believed. Uh, Jerusalem, they went out from Jerusalem, at least Philip and the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. He goes from Jerusalem into Samaria, shares the gospel there. Uh, There's a a great abundance of of believers there. Uh, He meets an Ethiopian eunuch in the early 30s uh, in Samaria. Uh, From there, he goes to Caesarea, and that's the last we see of Philip. Uh, The Spirit of God took him to Caesarea. Uh, The conversion of Saul of Tarsus in the early 30s or mid-30s, we might say. We believe that Jesus died in A.D. 33, so this is shortly thereafter, where Saul of Tarsus goes to Damascus to persecute and arrest Christians, and along the way, God saves him. Uh, At the very least, we could say tonight that this was the worst, the biggest enemy of Christianity uh, a man who hated Christ and knew all about Judaism. And in a flash of light, literally, flash of light from heaven, he was saved. Jesus appeared to him. That can happen to anyone. Doesn't that give you good, good uh, encouragement to know that there are certain people, many that you love, who have never come to Christ and you're wondering how they can ever will, how they ever might? Well, God can do anything. As he did with Saul. Saul goes off, and I take that off the map, three years. He says he was in Arabia, uh, where he was no doubt... Getting his three-year master's degree, right? Uh, out there in the wilderness, learning. And and I think that Saul was taking everything he knew about the Old Testament, and he knew it. Every word of it. This was the, one of the most brilliant men that ever lived. He knew everything about Judaism. And that was, in that wilderness, he was taking everything he knew and sifting it together with what he knew about Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. All of these passages, all of this Old Testament prophecy, putting together, and he's just... Becoming more and more brilliant in Christ. Comes back to Jerusalem where he speaks of what happened in the early chapters of Galatians. Chapter, late chapter 1 and early chapter 2 of Galatians. He's about 10 years up and goes back to his hometown of uh, Tarsus and Cilicia. Uh, Peter, the scene flashes back to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and, and Cornelius. Cornelius, if you remember the Samaritans, they're half-breeds. They're half-Jew and they're half-Gentile. And the gospel went to them and they believed. And this was difficult for Jews to understand, to accept, I should say. Now Cornelius is going to represent full blooded Gentiles. Peter goes to him and his family, gives the gospel to him in Acts chapter 10. Now the Gentiles are Christians and they receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter is there to witness it. Same thing Jesus said he would be. You were going to be my man, you were holding the keys to, to, to the kingdom. And Peter witnessed. Jews, half-Jews, and full Gentiles. And so now he sees that the gospel has gone out to the world. It's not just for Jewish people. And he attests to that. And what better apostle would there be to attest to that than the apostle Peter, Jesus' right-hand man. The exiles, they leave Jerusalem and they began to preach in Antioch. Antioch becomes the primary church uh, for early Christianity, just north of Jerusalem in modern Syria. Barnabas goes from Jerusalem, gets Saul. That's why I take the line up there above Antioch. He goes and he finds Saul. We're in Acts chapter 11, latter part of Acts 11. Brings him down to Antioch and Saul gets busy. He becomes the apostle Paul. And then the ministry of Paul begins in the book of Acts. So we look at his missionary journeys. Get acclimated to the, to the map there. Uh, once again, the white is the, is the, the water, the sea. Uh, Paul's first missionary journey was to Cyprus. He took with him uh, Barnabas and John Mark. They go to the, uh, after Cyprus, they go to the mainland there in Turkey, old Asia Minor. Barnabas uh, remains with Paul. John Mark says, I don't need this. I'm going home. And he does. And there's a rift between he and Paul. Later becomes a rift between Paul and Barnabas as a result. Um, Mark goes back down to Jerusalem. That's what the yellow line indicates. Paul and Barnabas go into these cities. These are the cities of Galatia. The Galatian churches, Antioch of, uh, and then Iconium. This is Pisidian Antioch, different than the Syrian Antioch. All of which are named after Antiochus, one of the rulers of Syria. Antiochus the first, the second, the third, the fourth. These areas were named after Antiochus. Hence Antioch. Uh, and there's more than one Antioch. This is Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Paul and Barnabas ministered to those churches, or planted those churches. That's acts 13 and 14 all the way through there. They came back to Antioch where they shared their, the good news of what had happened. And when Barnabas said, Hey, let's go back. Paul said, yes, let's do it. He said, I'll go get Barnabas said, I'll go get John Mark. Paul said over my dead body. I'm not going with him. He abandoned us before. Barnabas said, Oh, we should Barnabas or Paul said, no, absolutely not. They split. Barnabas went with John Mark and Paul took Silas. And so uh, from Jerusalem, uh, you've, they've got this council in Acts 15. This is all happens prior to what I just said. And now Paul launches the second missionary journey with Silas. Barnabas and Mark went back to Cyprus, and we don't hear from them again. God doesn't follow this this twosome. Uh, no doubt they did great things, as many missionaries have. God is following his chosen instrument, who is the apostle Paul now. Paul goes with Silas back through those towns. They pick up Timothy in Acts chapter 16. Make their way over. Paul at this point is wanting to go north. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going there. You're not going there. They end up going over into, uh, try to make it that way. They get to Troas and Paul has a vision. A dream of someone over in Macedonia saying, come over here. Macedonia is across that little strait there. Out of Asia Minor into Europe. And so the gospel will go into Europe here. Paul picks up Luke because the book of Acts written by Luke begins to be spoken of in the first person. There's the we sections. We did this. We did that. Prior to that time, it was Paul did this. Silas did this. Now it's we. Luke is with them. Go over into Philippi where they meet Lydia. They pray. Church is planted. There's persecution. They're expunged and move into Thessalonica. Doesn't go a whole lot better. Although the church is planted, people come to know Christ And yet they're kicked out of there. Paul goes into Berea for a short time. And then he goes down to Athens, Greece. We're in Acts chapter 17 at this point. uh, And he begins to speak to the Athenians. And they think that he's crazy, although some believe. And that's true everywhere Paul goes. Some think that he's nuts. They think he's off his rocker. Some hate him and try to kill him. Others actually believe the message that he gives them. Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. If you recall, Priscilla and Aquila had been kicked out of Rome uh, over there to the left side of, the, uh, of the, your map. And they had been kicked out of Rome because Claudius, the emperor, who's reigning at this time in AD 51, has kicked out all the Jews. Probably not because he's mad at Jews, but because Christians are already over there spreading the gospel. And the Romans don't know the difference between a Jew and a Christian at this point. So they've been kicked out. Paul meets them in Corinth. Um. Paul, or Silas and Timothy come back, actually join Paul in Corinth. And at this point, Paul is able to preach freely, he says. It's Acts chapter 18. He writes 1 Thessalonians. Note this. While he's in Corinth, he gets a message. Remember, he had left Thessalonica, and he makes his way down to Corinth, and he gets a message that the Thessalonians are a little worried about things. They're worried about uh, the coming of Christ, that they may have missed it. Paul writes them a first letter of 1 Thessalonians. Then he writes them a second letter. Second Thessalonians, these are his early epistles, perhaps his first. He writes Galatians, uh, which may have predated it just slightly. He goes from Corinth, makes his way back to Jerusalem, and then back to Antioch. His second missionary journey is now complete. He goes on a third journey and he goes back through that area, those areas of the galatian of the Galatians I should say it's uh, we 're still in the The early part of Acts chapter 19 now, he's going to make his way to Ephesus. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla move from Corinth to Ephesus. They try to send Apollos over to Corinth because Paul's gone. Priscilla and Aquila are gone. They meet Apollos and his theology is just needing a little bit of tweaking. He listens to them. Priscilla and Aquila tweak his theology at the end of Acts chapter 18, send him over. He becomes the second pastor in Corinth. Corinth. Paul goes over, or he leaves, I should say. That's what the, the arrow is there. Paulus goes to Corinth. Paul himself makes his way to Ephesus, the early part of Acts 19. This area in the shade here, this is two years at Ephesus. And Paul says, in that two years, the entire area of Asia heard the word of God. That's why it's highlighted. So two years later, this is wonderful. You think about this. This is a Muslim country now, but this was originally a nation that knew Christ. And they heard it from the apostle Paul. And spreading around all those little areas there, the Galatian churches. Paul is preaching God's word. This man who once tried to destroy Christianity is preaching Christ and people are coming to faith. From Ephesus, he hears of Preble in Corinth. He writes a letter. We don't have it. How do we know we don't have it? Well, we just don't have it. Uh, He refers to it in 1 Corinthians. He said, in my previous letter, but we don't know what it is. So 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter he had written to them. It's a non-extant letter. Writes to them. There's problems. He writes 1 Corinthians and answers their questions. Uh, and you'll see that in 1 Corinthians if you, if you read it. Uh, uh, he gets to their, their issues, their questions by Acts Chap- or by 1 Corinthians 5. He said, look, I understand there's a man there sleeping with his mother, stepmother, we think. And uh, this is something that's so heinous, he says. Not even the pagans do that. And then he gets in chapter 6 and he says, now to your questions. And he starts talking about them and lawsuits. And in chapter seven, marriage and divorce and remarriage. And in chapter eight and nine, is about eating food sacrificed to idols. It's a they had sent him a letter. He's answering their questions. That's what First Corinthians is. He wrote it from Ephesus. Uh, he comes back. He actually goes to Corinth, and he is apparently made fun of. Uh, they they rebuke Paul and uh, make fun of him, and he puts his tail between his legs. Goes back to Ephesus. And uh, writes another letter that's non-extant, uh, meaning non-in-existence. By the time he writes uh, Second Corinthians, it's actually his fourth letter to him. God only preserved the second and the fourth. We call them the first and the second. Um, he goes back up into Philippi. Uh, he crosses, he moves from Ephesus to Troas. And at Troas, he's waiting for his buddy Titus. Because he sent Titus. Titus, you go into, the, into Corinth for me. I was humiliated last time I was there. He said, I had to write him a harsh letter and uh, come back and I'll meet you in Troas and you can tell me what they did. Well, he waits in Troas and he says all this in 2 Corinthians, but Titus doesn't show up. So he goes across into Philippi, runs into Titus and Titus says, Paul, brother, I've been to Corinth and they repented at your letter at the 3 Corinthians letter that we don't have. And Paul says, praise God. And he sends Titus back. And he says, I'm going to write another letter. And that becomes 2 Corinthians. Are you good and confused? Yeah. I know it's confusing. He's here. He's there. It's all there. It's all there. It's going to be there on the recording. So if you want to go back and, and memorize all that. So Paul's at Philippi. Uh, he sends Titus, as I said, to Corinth. Titus comes back, gives him good news. Paul writes the letter. Um, I should have put it in deep, darker font. When he writes 2 Corinthians, he mentions Illyricum. Uh, but we wonder when he had been there. Um, uh, he said, I've been all over around Illyricum. This is Albania today. Uh, he, when, when was Paul there? There's just some things that Acts doesn't tell us. Paul had been moving around. In fact, he had maybe during the 10 silent years, we don't know where he was. He might have been over in Illyricum, but neither here nor there. Paul had given the gospel everywhere he went. He wrote that Second Corinthians letter. Uh, he goes to Corinth. He uh, gives them that letter. Actually, he sent the letter ahead. He goes to Corinth and everything is good. From Corinth, he's going to write to the Romans. To the, not to the Roman people, but to the church in Rome. We know this because at the end of 2 Corinthians, he talks about his, his, uh, um, how he wants to go to Rome, what he's going to do. So he writes this letter, and he tells the people, in, uh, the Christians in Rome, I've got first, first I have to go to Jerusalem. Why did he have to go to Jerusalem? Remember? Had a big, huge bag of money. Got to give that. He's going to go over there. He knows he's going to be persecuted, but that's his plan. I'm coming to see you, but he's got to go all the way in the other direction to Jerusalem and then get back to Rome. He did make it, but under arrest after a few years, right? So he goes back to Jerusalem. His third missionary journey now complete. He was warned, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest you. Paul says, I don't care if they arrest me. I don't care if they kill me. I'm going. This is what God has called me to do. Don't get in my way. Um, He was in Caesarea Philippi, arrested and left there for two years. And finally, in Acts chapter 27, Paul moves uh, by way of ship under arrest and moves over to this island of Malta. They're shipwrecked for a while. They finally find themselves in this island. They stay there for three months. Paul finally makes his way into Rome where he meets some Christians and goes. And that's how the book of Acts ends. Acts chapter 28 You've heard of Acts 29, the Acts 29 movement. If you've ever heard of Acts 29, Acts, there is no 29th chapter. It's just a clever way of saying here's the the rest of the story. The rest of history is kind of recorded what everything that happened since then until now. So his first imprisonment, while he's there, he writes a letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, over there in uh uh, Asia Minor. He did not start that church. A man named Epaphras had. Apparently, Epaphras was one of those people who heard the gospel while Paul was preaching in Asia, and it started the church. Paul met Epaphras, and he writes a letter to the Colossians. So when you read the book of Colossians, a letter to the Colossians, know that it was written by a man in jail. He also speaks of uh, re- reading the letter he had written to the Ephesians. Also read that Uh, to the Laodiceans well we don't have a letter to the Laodiceans and yet Paul references a letter he had written to the Laodiceans Um, Onesimus was a slave you ever read that one page book in the Bible you can tell somebody I read an entire book of the Bible today it's just one page long book of Philemon book of Philemon Philemon is the slave owner of Onesimus well Onesimus escaped his owner Philemon and Paul and meets Paul. They're strangers. Paul happens to come across him and says, oh, Onesimus, you were the slave of Philemon. He's a buddy of mine. He leads Onesimus to Christ and then says, you need to go back to your owner. You're, you're robbing from him. He owns you. So he sends him a letter. You go back and give this letter to Philemon. I'll make sure Philemon doesn't do anything but honor you because now you're a brother in Christ. So we know Onesimus. Epaphras takes the, uh, comes back, as I said earlier, from Colossae. Paul also writes to the Ephesians in jail. So we know he wrote four letters when he was in jail. Uh, Also wrote one to the Philippians. So Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. In each one, he never says, or in, in none of them does he say, guys, please pray for me, get me out of this place. Please help me. No, he's got the glory of the Lord all over him. He is so impressed with the way God is using him in jail. He even says in the book of Philippians that the whole Roman praetorium guard is hearing the gospel. People are coming to know Christ. Paul was not one to say, I need to get out of here. He took everything, he, everywhere God sent him, all those bad places, and he spread the gospel. That's why he's our hero, isn't it? He? Sent Philemon back, Colossians again. Um, when Paul was released, we believe he was released, although the Bible never says he was released, because at the end of Acts chapter uh, 28, Paul's in uh, in jail, But those letters he writes, he writes, especially in Philippians, he believes, he says, I'm, I know I'm going to get out. And even if I don't, I'm going to be good with it. But he knows he's going to get out. and We believe he got out. Other church historians, I should say, church fathers, men and women who lived during that period, believed he did get out and have written that he did get out. And it was his intention to go to Spain. It's what he told the, the Romans, uh, the church in Rome, I should say. Did he go to Spain? There's some evidence that he did, uh, uh, that he did make his way to Spain. That's where he wanted to go. Um, he wanted to go back to Ephesus. He speaks in first Timothy, which was his first letter once he was out of jail. Uh, and he told Timothy, I'm going to meet you in Ephesus. So he had intention to go to Ephesus. Was it after Spain? Did he not go to Spain? There is enough time frame from the time Paul died. We believe he died around AD 66 and he was in jail. We see him at the end of his, uh, Acts chapter 28 AD 62. He would have had time to do that. Incidentally, let me, t- let me say this to you. Um, We've looked at it before, but Luke writes his gospel. When he opens his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken the task to write about these things, in other words, there's other gospels out there that have already been written, he said, I too wanted to give you a point by point um, account. And he writes to one man named Theophilus, I wanted you to have a point by point account of what happened in the life of Jesus. So others had written the gospel. And he finishes it, he finishes that gospel, sends it to Theophilus, and then when he writes the book of Acts, he said, oh, Theophilus, in my first account, I told you everything that Jesus did and said. In this account, I'm telling you this. Now, follow me. Stay with me. If Luke was written first, and the book of Acts ends in AD 62 with Paul imprisoned in Rome, when was the gospel finished? Prior to AD 62, if he wrote the Gospel of Luke after other Gospels had been written, when was Matthew and Mark written? At least in the 50s. Now, you will read and hear things. Don't listen to people on TV. They are liberals or they are just uneducated, are parroting what liberal. People will read a book and say, this guy says this, he has a PhD. How many PhDs are you going to agree with in this world? Just because someone has an education doesn't mean they're smart, folks. I mean that. I have a great education, and I ain't smart. I know smart people. I'm not one of them. I'm diligent. I learn things. But just because someone says it, just because you read it in a book, there are two stories here. There are those that believe what God has said, and there's no evidence to the contrary, by the way. And there are those that say that can't be true. And they write books too. All of the evidence points to the Gospels being written, at least at least Matthew and Mark. We believe Mark was the first one because mark's is short why would matthew write, why would matthew have all of this and mark write something like this in fact the early church says that mark was the first one anyway early church uh, fathers and then matthew wrote his and then those are there and luke writes his and luke's is done by AD 62 by AD 60 at least so are you good are you with are you with me mm-hmm. this is church history this is what puts you to sleep in high, high school maybe a christian college you went to you're going to stay awake in this class are you Stay with me. What do others say about Luke that, you, that the controversy delivered? Well, that the, the, his letters, were, his gospel wasn't written until the 80s. Okay. Yeah, and that's what you'll read, is that Matthew and Mark, they weren't written until the 90s long after the fact, is what they're saying. And calling into question that no one, Mark didn't write it, Matthew didn't write it, these weren't written by the apostles, prove it. There's no evidence to the contrary, and yet liberals will always say, well, they couldn't have written it. Well, why couldn't they have I mean, I've read it too. I'm not an idiot. I'm reading this. It looks like they did to me. Uh, The early church was there to say they did. Who are we living in the 21st century to say they didn't? Um, We go with what historians tell us, not what liberals want us to believe. So Paul is out. He's writing letters again. Uh, We believe he made his way up into uh, Troas because he tells when he's imprisoned again, Okay, he was in prison once, he's out, he's going to be imprisoned again. And when he's imprisoned again in Second Timothy, he tells Timothy, he said, look, I need my, my parchments, I need my writings, and get my cloak that I left where? In Troas. Which means that when he got out, he went, and he came back, and he had his stuff, probably in, high, in uh, some car, sort of storage bin. You know, back then, I can carry a whole Bible around like that, and you know how small Bibles can be. You can stick them in your pocket. Back then, you're carrying scrolls. Uh, in a backpack and there's a lot to carry paul probably put him in storage and he's telling timothy hey when you come see me and please get here before winter um bring my stuff so we know he was there he writes first timothy uh did he write to the church of colossae um did he write to others Maybe he was there. Did he visit those places? We don't know. Did he visit Crete? That's what that arrow is. That's where Titus was sent to serve. Did he know enough about the the island of Crete and what was going on there and the church that had been started there to be able to tell Titus what he told him? Perhaps. So maybe he had visited there. That's why he wrote the letter to Titus. He speaks of being in Dalmatia. Looks like he may have gone up into this area. At least uh, this is where he's going to winter on this coast. At least that was his plan in second Timothy, and then he's rearrested and put in Rome uh, back in Rome and uh, that is where he knows he says, "I've fought the good fight i've I've uh, kept the faith, I've finished the race. Uh, what's uh, in store for me now is uh, is glory, and uh, we know that uh, we don't know the Bible doesn't record it, but um, Paul died like every uh, a Roman citizen would die by beheading, and so uh, uh, we believe that he was beheaded as a Roman citizen. In Rome, around A.D. 66, during uh, uh, the reign of uh, Nero, after he'd gone a little bit insane. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, actually. Um, at this point, we've got uh, the death of James. Uh, not uh, Remember, you've got a couple of different people named James in the Bible. Uh, James and John are the sons of Zebedee. There's another James who's the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, uh, Jesus was born from the Virgin Mary. Mary married Joseph, they had relations, they had other children, James was one of those. Uh, He did not believe in Jesus early on. In fact, James is named in Mark chapter uh, 3, I believe, and in uh, Matthew uh, Matthew 9, where his brothers are named, and he's got sisters too, they're never named, but since it's in plural, there's at least two of them. Um, But James became the the ruler or the leader, I should say, of the Jerusalem church. After Paul escaped the Jews at Jerusalem, they took out their vengeance on James, the half-brother of Jesus, and killed him. This is the man who earlier wrote the book of James. Eusebius, the fourth century historian, recounts the event. He says this, but after Paul, in consequence of his appeal to Caesar, had been sent to Rome by Festus. Of course, you know, that's Acts chapter 25. The Jews, being frustrated in their hope of entrapping him by the snares which they had laid for him, turned against James, the brother of the Lord. Remember, these are hungry people. Remember, they they took a vow. We're not going to eat until we get Paul. They couldn't get Paul, so if we kill James, maybe we can justify getting a meal. Uh, James was in the habit of entering into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel. In consequence of this, of his constantly bending them in his worship of God, because of his exceeding great justice, he was called James the Just. Uh, leading him into their midst, Eusebius says, uh, they demanded of him that he should renounce faith in Christ in the presence of all the people. Stand, therefore, upon the pinnacle of the temple. That's the highest point. That from that high position you may be clearly seen, and that your words may be readily heard by all the people. But with a clear voice and with greater boldness than they had anticipated... James spoke out before the whole multitude and confessed that our Savior and Lord Jesus is the Son of God, saying, Why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. So they went up and threw down the just man and said to each other, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. Imagine that. Uh, He fell from the pinnacle of the temple, and was probably writhing. And so they just finished him off by throwing stones at him. But he turned and knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And one of them, who was a fuller, took the club with which he beat out clothes and struck the just man on the head. This is Eusebius Christian History, chapter 2. In verse not verse twenty three section twenty three Roman Jerusalem the tragedies in these two cities led to changes in perceptions of Christianity if people are dying like this the world is going to look at it in such a way maybe not so favorably well if I become a Christian look at what's happening to these people um, in A D sixty four a fire destroyed ten districts in Rome this is a historical event written by Tacitus the Roman historian. Um, something that Nero started it because he wanted to rebuild. But when people began to blame him, he decided to blame the Christians, brutalizing them, burning them and torturing them. Peter and Paul were likely martyred during this time in Rome. It's believed that Peter was in Rome. There is no proof that Peter was in Rome, by the way. Uh, If you read the book of uh, Romans, the last chapter of Romans, chapter 16, Paul gives all kinds of shout outs to people. Peter is not listed among them. It's odd to greet these people and not Peter. Why is that a big deal? Well, one of the things you'll see if you read church history is that it was important for cities, the people of the city, to have a very important apostle visit them. And if, even if the apostle hadn't visited them, they would say that the apostle had visited them. Now, Rome is the top dog. Rome is the biggest uh, city. It's the, the capital city of the empire, what's the top apostle you want to have been there? Peter. Hence he becomes in Roman Catholic lore as the first papa, the first pope of the most prominent church in the area. Uh, in fact, when he writes, when Peter writes at the end of first Peter chapter five, where does he say he is? He says I'm in Babylon. Now, is it code for, for, a uh, Rome, or is there's another there's another city of Babylon? Really, wasn't a whole lot happening, and another location, and then there's Babylon, Babylon, uh, in modern Iraq. Uh, we don't know, but church tradition points to him being in Rome. We know Paul was there, uh, and they were likely martyred during this time. Now, mind you, I want you to know that church history from AD seventy to one hundred and ten is sparse. There's not a lot of info in that forty years. So what I'm telling you is what we have up to that point, after about 110, we see a lot of things happening. Um, people are scattering in AD 70. This was a horrific event uh, that the, the city, I'm going to show you uh, with some of the quotes from Josephus as to how horrific it was. In AD 70, the Roman army destroyed the Jerusalem temple. Now this is poetic in a sense. Jesus had uh, told the apostles in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, that the uh, uh, the disciples were looking at the, the great temple in Jerusalem saying, isn't this beautiful, Lord? Isn't this a wonderful temple? And Jesus said, i tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And if you've been there, those stones are still there. Now they're all stacked on top of each other. Uh, you must not have meant it literally, say, essentially saying they're all going to be scattered. It's going to be torn down. And it was. And this is something that frightened people. It Not only frightened people, people were dead because of it. Not because rocks fell on them, but because the Romans tortured them. Um, Nero began, uh, his persecution, uh, around this time, uh, around AD 60, uh, 66-ish. Uh, he died in 68. This is just a picture, an overview of Rome, uh, of the city of Rome, his circus. You've ever heard of Nero's circus? This little area right outside of the city was the place where they had all their, their fun and, uh. Uh, this is before the Colosseum was built, by the way. That was built by later on. Uh, didn't happen until Vespasian uh, later on. But right near Nero's circus, all kinds of entertainment. He sets this fire. When Rome burned, Nero blamed the Christians and instigated the first official persecution of Christianity. He was the first. and It was a localized one. It wasn't empire-wide. It was essentially right there in Rome. To suppress the rumor, this is the Roman historian Tacitus, I believe is who I'm quoting, who lived in the day. To suppress the rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, which he actually writes it as Crestus, had been executed in Tiberius' reign, but in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in the capital, he says. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for incendiarism as for their antisocial tendencies. Christians were loathed for being antisocial. Man, I'd have been the first one killed. And it was because they weren't participating in all the, the revelry that the, the others were. So they were called antisocial. Did you say Nero started the it's, it's not known who started it. It's believed it was started in an oil factory. Um, but because Nero wanted it, there's also evidence that Nero wasn't in town when it happened. And rushed to the scene. So it's not really known. Hmm. But it was blamed later on Christians by him. To suppress the rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats. Didn't I just say that? Yes, I did. I, that was already sounding familiar. <laughs> Tacitus goes on. He says, their deaths were made farcical. I had to look that word up. Absurd. It was absurd how, how horrible their deaths were. How, how many of you knew what the word meant? How many of you knew what farcical means? Farcical. Yeah, that's what I said. I said farcical. <laughs> it's a farce. It's a farce. There it is. Thank you. See, this is how humiliating it is to be a teacher. (laughs) Their deaths were made farcical or absurd, dressed in wild animal skins. This is what Nero did to Christians. He dressed them in wild animal skins so that they could be torn to pieces by the wild dogs or crucified. He made some of them into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. In other words, living burning candles. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, this is Tacitus writing. The victims were pitied, for it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one to one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. He writes, Tacitus writes this in his annals. Um, Both Peter and Paul at this time were persecuted or or executed. It's believed, and the building, uh, this building right here, is built over what's believed to be Peter's tomb. Why were Christians so hated? As I said earlier, they they rejected traditional Roman gods. The Romans misunderstood their customs. In fact, by eating the Lord's Supper, um, remember what Jesus said, take this, this is my body, drink this, this is my blood. The Romans took that for cannibalism. Christians also valued children and women in ways that challenged the social order. Women and children were not respected at all in the Roman Empire. They were just maybe a cut above uh, a dog, Christianity seemed to like the Romans like a new religion. And they were suspicious of any new traditions. Um, and again, do you know that Christians were called atheists? Atheists. Because they had one God and were not celebrating the Roman pantheon. These Roman emperors, we know Augustus, all of these from history. Uh, the Bible uh, mentions Augustus. Tiberius does not mention Caligula. Uh, it mentions Claudius. Does not mention Nero, uh, which is, I love it, that that Nero is never mentioned. Um, He ruled until uh, A.D. 68, in the year 68, 69, it's called the year of four emperors, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Vespasian came out on top, he reigned for 10 years, 69 to 79. His son Titus, who was the general in the army under Vespasian, is actually the one that took Jerusalem in A.D. 70, um, became the, the general after his dad. Domitian in 81 to 96, and then Nerva, that's your first century Roman emperors. Uh, the the one that brought about, I should say there's two here that, that made great strides to kill Christians, and that's Nero and Domitian uh, there in 81 to 96. <laughs> the destruction of the temple, the Jewish temple affected per- perceptions of the Christian faith. In AD 66, uh, the group of Jewish insurrectionists took Galilee, And Judea from the Romans. Well, this is not something that's going to make Rome very happy. Uh, They're trying to take it back. Maybe like Christians are trying to take their country back. Uh, Problem is, is this isn't their country, is it? United States is not Christian country. Don't ever fall into the, into the error of thinking this is our nation. Don't ever fall into the error of thinking this is a Christian nation. Or that it ever has been. Or that God has somehow given us this land. He has not. 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name, what? Will humble themselves, pray to me, I will will heal their land. This is not our land. That passage wasn't written to you and me. It has nothing to do with the United States. We are, on the contrary, sojourners. Aliens on the earth. Don't fall into that category. When, when When the United States wins, every Baptist church I ever knew, remember I grew up in it. Second Chronicles chapter seven verse fourteen. If my people humble yourselves, well, what land are you going to heal? Lord? The land of Israel is the land to be healed. That's where the promises are. All right, I've made a few enemies, my Baptist friends. So in 66, after the, the uprising of, of Jews in their own land, Vespasian sent his son Titus to retake the rebel provinces. In seventy, Titus destroyed the Jewish temple. Um, By the way, it wasn't 66 that Vespasian sent them there. Vespasian didn't even take the throne until 69. Uh, So 66, you've got all this disorder. Nero dies in 68. You've got the uprising north of town in in, uh, Palestine, in Israel. Uh, By the time all those uh, emperors make their way and jostle for position, jockey for position, uh, Vespasian takes it. He sends his son. Go take care of it. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus' words that happened that he gave in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, that not one stone will be left upon another, it's going to come to pass. And it's poetic, as I said earlier, because God has no need for the temple. That temple, as beautiful as it was, was the center of Jewish worship. It was the center of the world where all Jews came to worship, brought their offerings. Their priesthood had to have a priest. From the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron, all gone. Chased out of town. Now the temple's gone. Well, what are we going to do, Lord? Don't need that temple. Where's the temple? Right there. Right there. We're the temple of God. It's as if God was saying, look, guys, if you can't get out of town, if you can't figure this out, I'll destroy your temple and disperse all of you. Now Judaism is gone. Gone. You cannot be a Jew without a temple in Jerusalem, without a priesthood and a priest from the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. You can't. You can't have your sins forgiven. You can't create a synagogue and do good works and be forgiven. Jews are unsaved no matter what they might think. The only way of salvation is through the one who destroyed that temple for his godly divine purposes, the Lord God Almighty. No temple is needed. So it's poetic that God took it out. And gave them about 35 years to figure it out. They didn't, so he destroyed it. <laughs> Titus destroyed the Jewish temple. Jesus predicted this event, as I said. At Passover, AD 70, Titus allowed worshipers to enter Jerusalem. He was playing a game on with them. He did not allow them to leave, though. Thus, the city was overfilled with people. Overflowed, I should have said. And famine ensued quickly uh, because you run out of food pretty quick. At, even at, at Passover, that's when most of the Jews are there. Josephus described the siege in detail. He says, the famine was so hard. Remember, they're inside the city, it's walled. They're inside, Romans are outside. Um, the only way you're going to get food, you eat what's there and then what do you do? So Josephus says, the famine was too hard for all other passions. For what was otherwise worthy of reverence was in this case despised. insomuch so much that children pulled the very morsels that their fathers were eating out of their very mouths. And what was still more to be pitied So did the mothers do as their infants. And when those that were most dear were perishing under their hands, they were not ashamed to take from them the very last drops that might preserve their lives. If it stopped there, that'd be bad enough. And the seditious, when they saw any house shut up, this was to them a signal that the people within had gotten some food. Whereupon they broke open the doors and ran in and took pieces of what, of what they were eating almost up to their very throats and by this force, the old men who held their food fast were beaten. And if the women hid what they had within their hands, their hair was torn for so doing. Nor was there any commiseration shown either to the age of the infants. If that was all that happened, that'd be bad enough. Titus ordered that they should lay ambushes for those that went out into the valleys to gather food. The severity of the famine made them bold in thus going out. And when they were taken by the Romans, they were first whipped And then tormented with all sorts of tortures before they died. And they were then crucified before the wall of the city. This miserable procedure made Titus greatly to pity them. While they caught every day 500 Jews, nay, some days they caught more. In other words, the Jews are so hungry they're leaving the city and they live to regret that. The main reason why he did not forbid that cruelty was this that he hoped the Jews might perhaps yield at that sight out of fear lest they might themselves afterwards be liable to the same cruel treatment. To the soldiers out of the wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught, one after one way, and another after another, to the crosses by way of jest. And their multitude was so great that there was not enough room for the crosses, nor enough crosses for the bodies. Josephus in his book, Wars. Some deserters leaped down from the wall while others of them went out of the city with stones as if they would fight them. But thereupon they fled away to the Romans. But here a worse fate accompanied these than what they found within the city. For there was found among the Syrian deserters a certain person gathering pieces of gold out of the excrements of the dead Jews' bellies. They swallowed their gold. And the ones that were still alive and knew that they had swallowed their gold waited for them to die and try to dig the gold out of their bellies. For well, the deserters used to swallow such pieces of gold when they came out. But when this contrivance was discovered, the Arabians with the Syrians cut up those that came as supplicants and searched their bellies. Nor does it seem to me that any misery befell the Jews that was more terrible than this. Since one night's time, about 2,000 of these deserters were thus dissected. I'm going to relate a matter of fact, the like to which no history relates either among the Greeks or the barbarians. It is horrible to speak of it and incredible when heard. This is Josephus speaking. There was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan. Her name was Mary. She was eminent for her family and her wealth and had fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude and was with them besieged therein at this time. What food she had contrived to save had been carried off by the rapacious guards. And it was now become impossible for her any way to find any more food while the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow snatching up her son who was a child sucking at her breast she said oh thou miserable infant for whom shall i preserve you in this war this famine and this sedition as to the war with the romans if they preserve our lives we must be slaves this famine also will destroy us even before that slavery comes up, even before that slavery comes upon us yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than both the other come be thou my food and be thou a fury to these seditious varlets she ate her kid. I don't want you to be intercepted by these people. I'm hungry. You'll die. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son and then roasted him and eat the one half of him and kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this seditious came in presently and smelling the scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten ready. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them. And withal uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with a horror and amazement of mind. And stood astonished at the sight when she said to them. This is my own son. And what hath been done was mine own doing. Come eat of this food. For I have eaten it myself. Do not you pretend to be either more tender than a woman. Or more compassionate than a mother. But if you be so scrupulous. Let the rest be reserved for me also. Leave me some leftovers. After which those men went out trembling, being never so much affrighted at anything as they, as they were at this. And with some difficulty, they left the rest of that meat to the mother. Again, Josephus writes this in his book called Wars. Eusebius summarizes the event, summarizes what happened. He said, as it, is, it is fitting to add to these accounts the true prediction of our Savior in which he foretold these very events. His words are as follows. Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight not be in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For there shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor shall ever be. Now, Jesus wrote this. This is quoted and believed by some to be the fulfillment. This is Matthew 24. Uh, Whereas myself, I would preach this to say, this is talking about end times tribulation. But there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible that has a near and a far fulfillment. Where it happened here and then it happened there. I'll give you a good example that I always give. The best example to give is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel speaks of a time where there will be an abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. That means that Jerusalem will be uh, overtaken. Uh, That uh, uh, there will be, um, the Jews will be, Scattered, killed, and, there, and the temple will be um, desecrated. Around 167 B.C., a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember I told you about all the men named Antiochus? He was Antiochus IV, and he called himself Epiphanes, the illustrious one. This guy's got an ego issue. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes came into the Jewish temple because he hated the Jews, slaughtered a pig, threw the blood all over the, the, the temple. The blood of a pig all over the Jewish temple. The abomination of desolation. Everyone knew it was. However, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, guys, when you see the abomination of desolation, to which the Jews might have said, wait a minute, that happened in 167, 167 years ago. Yes, it did. As a precursor to what is coming in the future. It's a now, not yet sort of a thing. And so this is kind of the same way. What they interpreted Jesus had said as being fulfilled then was fulfilled in a sense. And you'll find some people today that say, look, the book of Revelation, about the end times, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, that was all fulfilled in A.D. 70. Was it? Jesus speaks of the whole world. This is a localized event in Jerusalem. Yeah, what happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was horrible. And it was a precursor to what happened there. And that's why I read it to you from Josephus' own words. What happened there will be worldwide, folks. What we read about in the book of Revelation, this is what people will do. What do people do when they get hungry? They're crazy. We'll do anything. How many of you remember the story back, was the 1970s, that uh, airliner went down in the Andes Mountain. Yeah, well, and they, I mean, they ate the dead. They didn't kill them, but they, yeah, Socrates. And they ate the dead. It took, took my wife to see that movie. then I asked her to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> she said, what is the deal? I said, I wanted to see it. I read the book. I wanted to see it. So anyway. Back up for Was he Christian? Yeah, Eusebius was a Christian historian under Constantine. So he, so he's in the fourth century. No, Josephus was not a Christian. It doesn't look like he had sympathies one way or the other. Uh, He was actually a a Jew working for the Romans. Uh, Eusebius, again, this is fourth century, around 315. Uh, He says this, Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who by divine power saw them beforehand, as if they were already present, and wept and mourned. When addressing Jerusalem herself, he said, If you had known even you in this day, the things which belong to you, belong unto your peace, but now they are hid from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you, That your enemies shall cast a rampart about you, encompass you around, and keep you on, keep you in on every side, and shall lay you and your children even to the ground. That's what Jesus said would happen. And why did it happen? Because people rejected Christ. Stay in Jerusalem, stay in the walls of Jerusalem, protect our temple. No, God said, Leave, I am the temple. You are the temple, I possess you, in so far as you believe in me. But the Jews chose to stay. So Titus breaks down the wall. May 25th, he breached the third wall. May 30th, he breached the second wall. Entered the second quarter. July 22nd, he took the fortress of Antonia. August 29th, he burned the temple. September 27th, he breached the walls of the lower city and burned it. September 28th, he burned the upper city. In the aftermath, the historian reckoning the whole number of the slain says that 1,100,000 persons, that's 1.1 million, by the way, Uh, perished by famine and sword. But the tallest of the youths and those that were distinguished for beauty were preserved for the triumph. Of the rest of the multitude, those that were over 17 years of age were sent as prisoners to labor in the works of Egypt, while still more were scattered through the provinces to meet their death in the theaters by the sword and by beasts. Those under 17 years of age were carried away to be sold as slaves, and these alone the number reached 90,000. The final group of Jewish rebels... Thousand of them, we're told, uh, chose mass suicide instead of murder, instead of surrender. I should say, and they made their way over, out past Jericho to the Mount of Masada. And if you've been to Jerusalem, if you've been to Israel with us, you've been. We've been on top of that mountain. I climbed it. Most people take the gondola. I climbed it. Climbed it twice. Todd went with me. I know it. Some of you are smart. And the reason I climbed it the first time I went was because. They didn't have gondolas in the first century. All these people are, and they didn't have paths. Todd and I went up and we're grabbing poles and we're resting on steps that they've made. Um, They didn't have that then. How'd they get water up there? This is Herod the Great's fortress, one of his fortresses. But a thousand of them went up there and and they stayed there for three years. By AD 73, the Romans surrounded it. And when they broke in, what did they find? Everyone was dead. And the story goes is that they drew lots uh, for a a murderer, someone to go around and kill. They went down to the last 10. They drew lots to who would kill the next 10. And then finally, the last person would commit suicide. Apparently, there were two to three that did not and were there to tell the story. We don't know how accurate it is. But when the Romans got there, they were all dead. They would rather die than give themselves to uh, slavery of the Romans. And so it was. After the destruction of the Jewish temple, and the Jewish Christian faiths became more distinct as Judaism became less diverse. And so you see today in, the, in uh, Rome, you'll see the arch there, Arch of Titus, to uh, commemorate his destruction of Jerusalem. In the late first century AD, Emperor Domitian demanded to be worshipped as Lord and God. It only got worse from there. Domitian and his, and his successor Trajan persecuted Christians as well as Jews. In A.D. 12, a governor of Bithynia named Pliny, he was called Pliny the Younger. His uncle was Pliny the Elder, but the Younger was a a governor in Bithynia. He described how he dealt with Christians in a letter that he wrote to Emperor Trajan. This is in existence today. It's one of the things we know outside the Bible is what Christianity was doing. Pliny described Christian beliefs as outlandishly superstitious, but he praised them for how kind of people they were. Um... The books of the Bible written at various times, books of the New Testament, I should say, um, Romans, 2nd 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, all written before AD 60. Um, Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon from prison and later wrote Timothy, Titus, and then 2nd Timothy from his second imprisonment, fall of Jerusalem's AD 70. That's a pivotal time. The Bible never says anything about AD 70. So we believe everything in the New Testament was finished before A.D. 70. If not, why would it not be mentioned except the book of Revelation? Um, Gospel of John was the latest to be written. John was the youngest. Remember, he was the fastest too. (laughs) He was. He liked to put that in there. He outran Peter to the tomb of Jesus. Wrote his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation, uh, somewhere in the 90s. Deaths of Paul and Peter around at the late latter part of uh, the 60s, probably 66, 67. From here, you've got the apologists, the defenders of the faith. Remember, I said there's not a lot between 70 and 110, so I'm just bringing us up into what little we do have. But the apologists, because Christians refused to worship the Roman gods and emperors, they were accused of atheism, as I told you earlier, believing in only one god as opposed to Rome's pantheon of gods and goddesses. Christian apologists defended their faith against false charges. The same thing Christian apologists today do. We defend the faith. Justin, uh, some people think his last name was Martyr, but he was known as a martyr because he was one of the first to die for the faith while defending it. He was a philosopher who became a Christian and an apologist. He believed that pagan philosophers had discovered dim shadows of divine truth, and he wanted to enlighten. Around AD 165, Justin Martyr was beheaded for his faith. Christianity grew because God's spirit was working. At the same time, God uses human factors as he enacts his sovereign will in the world. So how God was working. Number one, we see that Christianity provided moral guidance to an immoral world. Then, and God help us if it's not true today. Many Gentile God-fearers became believers in Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. Number two, Christianity valued women and children. Others did not. Number three, Christianity offered a relationship with a God who had intersected human history and who, through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, understood humanity's suffering. How God was working? I think that's how God continues to work. I hope he is. Polycarp of Smyrna, before he was executed for his faith, he was a a friend of John, a disciple of John, the, the Apostle John. When they threatened him, Renounce your faith, he says, 86 years I've served Christ, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king, the one who has saved me? So they fed him to the lions. Sanctus of Lyon, before his martyrdom, said nothing is painful so long as the glory of Christ is near. Regarding the martyrdom of Blandina, as a woman, they saw in the form of their sister, him who was crucified for them. She was tossed around apparently, played around with by the lion a tiger that ate her, Threw her up in the air. They watched her come down, break her bones, and then eat her. Oh, don't don't groan. That moment she was in glory. And they knew it. They wanted it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you again. Thank you for your, your goodness, your grace, your mercy. I pray that you would excite us with the history of the church, mainly because we are excited to know Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, senior pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.